Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and this is Good Radio. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I've seen good people go bad and smart people go mad. Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of anthropocentric sovereignty and the Fermi Paradox. Today, we will be talking about the vast of night. Next week, we're talking about the city we became. And then, Dan, do you know what we're doing soon after that? I sense a presence, a presence I have not felt in the history of this podcast, Donna. <laughs> We are going to be talking about something from the Star Wars canon, Dan. Like, yes. we have decided the the franchise famous for its insights on economics and, <laughs> and foreign policy. <laughs> I mean, the entire saga starts with the taxation of trade routes on us. That's you right. Know, that's just catnip to someone like me. I know. It's, it's surprising we haven't done it sooner. We have chosen yeah. to do Rogue One. Yes. Which is... You know, not in the taxation <laughs> no. trilogy. That's, that's yes, the, the epic taxation prequel trilogy, which, you know, it's just wildly undervalued. But I, I like that we're doing this. There is definitely some IR in this film. It's, it's going to be worth exploring. We've also gotten the results for our poll about what Heinlein book we're supposed to talk about, and it will be The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. We have some other stuff coming up, but we're always taking suggestions. Dan, where can people make those suggestions? If you want to reach out to us on Twitter, I am at Dan Dresner, and you are, of course, at Anna Marie Cox. Indeed. There is another option, which is if you really are into the show, you can choose to become a patron. That's another way to go. Our Patreon page is patreon.com slash space the nation. And there are lots of goodies if you decide to join, including early access to the podcast, access to our Discord channel. And, and access uh, to us, basically. Ac- yes, exactly. That's the exactly. real reason to join. The Discord yes. channel is one way to communicate with one of us. Mm. <laughs> I occasionally pop in, Anna. I, for example, I know that you were somewhat upset that apparently the introduction <laughs> for my, my media this week <laughs> did not mention the podcast. And I apologize for that. So I, I went on Vox and I, I did left, right, and center. And it did not say also, among other... You know, yeah, Dresner's he's a professor. He writes for the Washington Post, Post and, and Space the Nation. Yes. So I'm going to tell you why I did not do that. What is it? Anna? Because you're talking about war crimes? Yes. Okay. And literally, I, I'm going to tell you a little story. This is a good way to open up this podcast. Maybe we'll edit it out later, but I, I, I've always been scarred by this. Back when I was in college, you know, the college radio station was CFM, and I was a huge fan of the, uh, the college radio station. And I remember when they would have like speakers come in, they would have them record, you're listening to CFM. Mm-hmm. So like it would be a, a promo for it. And they actually got, so Dith Pran came once. Now Dith Pran is a you know Cambodian Holocaust survivor. He was portrayed by Dr. Hangus Noor, who won an Academy Award for the, the movie The Killing Fields based on Dith Pran's life. And I remember turning on the radio at one point and hearing the following promo. This is Dith Pran, Cambodian Holocaust survivor. And you're listening to WCFM. <laughs> and I just like, I discovered that there was an internal red line where it was like, no, you can't do that. That is wrong. <laughs> do not play that promo. Dan, that's no way to live under capitalism, though. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. Always be huckstering. Always I'm, be hustling. Always I am someone, be selling. <laughs> I am someone who normally adheres to that, but there are red lines I will not cross. And I just didn't think you'd maybe want to associate Space the Nation with 
the war in Ukraine. I, I concede. For that thing. I concede okay. that was probably a good choice. <laughs> Dan, also, you've had quite the week, really. I have. So listeners are probably aware at this point that uh, technically, I, I believe I still have COVID. I tested positive after. <laughs> uh, Sorry. Yeah. You know, who knows? Who knows how long it lasts? Really? I really, I honestly don't know at this point in the sense of like, I, we so, all, when have we not all had COVID? Have we ever, yes, exactly. <laughs> we have all had COVID now. <laughs> Let's put it this way. I was symptomatic with COVID right. a week ago for about two days and it was, you know, basically a cold. It wasn't that bad at all. But then I tested positive, which of course means I have to be totally isolated for five days and now I have to be partially isolated for the next five days, wear a mask wherever I go and so forth. So yeah, that was an eventful week uh, and just really threw a monkey wrench into a whole bunch of things. COVID was inconvenient in a lot of ways. There were some upsides though, Anna. And, and I think, you know, I'm going to say two of the upsides for me, which is not that I would recommend anyone catch COVID, but it's not all bad. First, after two years of dreading getting this disease, it was actually <laughs> something of a relief to realize that I got it and like none of the work, none of the really bad symptoms. Right, so right. I, I don't have brain fog. You know, I didn't have difficulty breathing. None of the really bad stuff. I, I didn't lose my sense of taste. None of that happened. So yay vaccines, yay boosters. I am a huge fan of those. Right. And and second, I'm not going to lie, I had some fun guilting some people on email when they would request something <laughs> for me to do something. Because, like, for stuff that I was irritated by, I'd be like, oh, I'm sorry I haven't responded to you. It's just because I have COVID, you monster! There you, you know, go. Things like that. Yeah. Weaponizing so, your illness. I weaponized COVID. Yeah, All right. it's true. How are you, Anna? I'm, I'm pretty good. It was a relatively quiet week here. I did, I, I went rock climbing for the first time in a year and change. Wow. Yes. Wow. At real rock climbing? Or no, like I do not do real walk? rock climbing. I, okay. I, it's indoor uh, climbing, bouldering. Okay. I, I have done outdoor. So no risk of 127 hours happening. This is no, good. no, 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 no. It's all, there's like cushions, you know. Yeah, yeah. People ask, it, like, it is maybe, there are some places that you have safety harnesses even at the heights that this is. There are mm -hmm. no safety harnesses here, but there are some, it's, the ground is very soft. Oh, that's good. Gymnastics yes. padding. So it was the first time in a year and a half because I got a really bad shoulder injury uh, and then a bunch of stuff happened in my life. <laughs> I just fell to the bottom of the list of things to do. But there's this, one of the reasons I love, I love bouldering is it's such, so many metaphors available. And one of them is this, which is that the reason I got injured was that the muscles you're supposed to use in rock climbing are all in your back. Which we don't actually use very often as as on day to day basis as computer right. using humans. We don't mm -hmm. reach up yes. and pull down very often, right? Like, Fair enough. Yes. We just reach forward. Right. As white collar professionals, this is not what we do. Right. So your lats and delts and whatnot that don't get exercised very much. Our forearm. Wait. Our biceps. Our biceps do. What are you yeah. laughing at? I'm sorry, listeners, I'm laughing. Whenever I hear someone say lats and delts, I always feel like I got to like, you know, sort of really brow. It's like, yeah, yeah, I got to I got to work on my core, man. Yeah, totally got to work on my lats and my delts. Yeah. Yep, yep. Well, Dan, you maybe you do. But anyway, um, so the reason I got injured is that I was overcompensating for not having a strong back muscles by overusing my shoulder and bicep. Oh, I see. Okay. And yes. so I had to do PT and in doing PT learn to isolate the muscles that I'm supposed to be using. That sounds like a superpower, Anna. This is impressive. <laughs> I know. And so when I went, went climbing the other day, I was able to really be thoughtful about using these new muscles. And Wow. So this is like zen bouldering. It is. It is like zen bouldering. It's a great that, metaphor, too, because like in life, 
-hmm. We often try to overcompensate using old skills, right? When we have to try something new. Mm -hmm. And then using the new muscles to do a new thing is really hard. And the only other and the only way to get through that is just to keep doing it. So I'm super sore. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a little embarrassing. I mean, I'm I mean, I've lost a lot of skill. Here's another great metaphor, though, is what I realized as I was climbing is that I'm going to have to start falling intentionally again um, in order to get over fear, fear of, of falling. falling. Oh. And that'll be, you know, I'll start from a low height. And work my way up and not really necessarily falling just like dropping like one of the impressive things you, that happens at a bouldering gym if you go is people who mm -hmm. like scramble up to the top and then they'll just like hang mm -hmm. and drop down Damn. They, yeah because <laughs> they know how to fall wow yeah. this is just all freighted with symbolism and i love it i know i know dan we should probably talk about the movie as interested as we people should. are in our lives yes because it's a good movie i'm excited that we did it yes it was your yes. idea why did you suggest the vast of night so there are two reasons that I suggested The Vast of Night. Actually, three reasons. The first is just no, simply... No, I five. No, 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 no three, <laughs> just three. The first and simplest one is I think this is lovely counter-programming to what we've been doing before. So it's, it's different from anything I think we've, we've done before. Second, I do think of this as a tough test of your sci-fi preferences, Anna, mm -hmm. because it is definitely a mix of sci-fi and horror and noir, but it was all made on a shoestring. And so I'm curious whether that, that works for you. Oh, there's a fourth reason I forgot. The third reason is that, <laughs> yeah, just, just, I'm, not, I'm not afraid of, of coming up with the extra reason. The, the third reason is for my own satisfaction, which is I first watched this. This first came out, I think, two months into the pandemic. And I really liked it. But I, I was like wary of, did I just like this because this was something new that I was watching during a pandemic as opposed to, you know, does it hold up over time? So that was, I was curious about. Right. But finally, Anna, the real reason I wanted you to watch this is that the two protagonists are an older nerd who thinks he knows it all partnered with a fiery redheaded nerd <laughs> who actually knows a shit ton. Okay, so I mean, I, I think... That I, that says that just speaks for itself. Frankly. Yes, and you have much to teach me. <laughs> I wound up really liking this. I'm glad we're going to talk about it. Yeah. Dan, this was a challenge for me. The Chekhov's "What's It" uh, yeah. for this uh, movie. It's such a well-made movie. There's not mm -hmm. actually a ton of like obvious plot engines. No. I, I was kind of hoping for mm -hmm. Chekhov's chipmunk. <laughs> you know, like to have like maybe the last scene be a chipmunk chewing through the UFO electricity cord or something. That but... would have been that would have been funny if the UFO if the UFO crashed because there was a chipmunk on the UFO. That would have been <laughs> or like an, whatever an alien chipmunk was like chewing that definitely would have been cord. <laughs> that would have been another direction to go. I think, and you know, maybe the vast of night too. That's what we'll see. But what was your checkoffs? What's it? I don't know if I had a check. Like you, there's not a, a, a ton of previews. The only thing I will say was the call letters on Everett's radio station is WOTW, which obviously stands for War of the Worlds. And so I'm not even sure that counts as a what's it in the sense of it's it's more like a sort of homage than anything. It's else. like an so. Easter egg. Yeah, exactly. Really? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's Chekhov's Easter egg. But I'd still, I, it was quite clever, I thought. Well, would you like we, to know more about this movie, Dan? Yes, Anna, I want to get behind the vastness. So hit me. Let's hit Let's... the story behind the story. Yeah. So this was one of the first big breakout hits of the pandemic, and there's a lot written about it. The story was like irresistible to people, right? Mm -hmm. The story of this under million dollar movie that just turned out to have a lot of um, enthusiasm behind it. People, you know, social media, whatever. 
got a lot of fans in the industry as well. Steven Soderbergh, I think, is a huge fan of it. That is correct. Yes. The one thing I could not find out about it is how much money it made, which I think is interesting. Amazon kept the de- details of the option secret. So, oh, so I assume words, it made money, so we, <laughs> but we just don't words, know don't, how much. <laughs> we don't know how much, but it, it, I was going to say, we don't know how much Amazon paid for yeah, it. Yeah, that's I mean, what I mean, how much money it right, made. Right, right. Like, yeah, we don't yeah. know what you know, Patterson was able to put in his pocket, basically. I I'm sure it was a lot. A fair amount. Yeah, yeah, I, I assume he, sure made he made his money bank. back. Yes. He made his $700,000 back. Yeah. This was the first feature film for Andrew Patterson, whose original idea started with the note, 1950s, black and white, New Mexico, UFO sighting. Well. Pretty, okay. pr- from such small things are, are, are great things born. Uh, yeah. It was rejected from 18 different film festivals. <laughs> he tells a story in one interview that he, when he it played at Slamdance and Steven Soderbergh immediately tried to get in touch with him and he was sure it was a prank of some kind. Like, <laughs> this is, just isn't possible, right? Right. He's from Oklahoma. Uh, the film was shot in Whitney, Texas, though. The town was selected because it had the right uh, gymnasium, the right look the gymnasium. Anna, you, you grew up in Texas, at least partially. What, yep. Where is Whitney in Texas? I, I assume it's ask. north because he did. Okay. He is in Oklahoma. I actually okay. didn't, didn't look it up. It also looks west-north to me. It's, mm-hmm. it's a drier part of Texas, so mm-hmm. it's definitely not east Texas. It's, I'm thinking it looks like Oklahoma. Almost. Although there does have to be a forest nearby because at one point there's yeah, a shot of the forest. That, that, might not a, be. <laughs> that might not be Whitney, though. Yeah, <laughs> fair Whitney. enough. It wouldn't, yeah, fair. I do love that they just wanted a place with the right gymnasium. Uh, yeah. I also, this is a great detail, of that $700,000, Apparently, they spent 20000 to get rid of the three-point line Wow! in the gymnasium. I, that sounds apocryphal to me, but I like it. Um, but it's also period accurate. That's yeah, true. So that's, that's good. true. That's um, good. Patterson yeah. gives a lot of credit to the town. They helped out with extras and props and cars and apparently a barbecue. That's nice. Aww. I do want to talk about the movie as a filmmaking text at some point. It really is an... You mocked me a little bit for this, for me invoking Alien, but I'm going to invoke Alien. <gasps> I know. I was not mocking you. Okay, I want to be very just, clear about this. You were impressed. I am that impressed. I would put you, it in, in this. Yes. Yes. I, I know the reverence that you hold for Alien on it. And so, like, any, even, like, to compare any movie to Alien, even if it is obviously not as good as Alien, that, that in and of itself is high praise for you. So, yes. It is not as good as Alien. It's very right. good. And what it has in common with Alien, though, is the economy. Mm-hmm. It. it is for one thing it's like a tight 90 minutes it is oh yeah you are in and out of this movie yes <laughs> which i kind of admire having seen a couple of marvel movies recently like <laughs> I, having I seen cannot, batman <laughs> i cannot stress it's the anti-snyder cut anna is yeah. the way i would think about it which is like there's value occasionally in in films of that length but you know what Maybe a few more science fiction films of this length. I think there's there's no harm in that. But what's interesting about the economy of it and what it has in common with Alien in the way that's both economical and yet, dare I say, vast and spacious, <laughs> like it has a lot of room in it. You don't mm-hmm. feel crowded by the plot. You don't feel crowded. By, it doesn't feel like it's going very fast, right? right? Like it, 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 everything is there for a reason. Right. right. It doesn't. It also doesn't feel rushed. It doesn't feel like, yeah. oh, they're moving really quickly. Like, no, this is, this is a. I would agree. This is a first time director, but the surety with which it's directed is quite something. Yeah, I, I made the fewest notes I've ever made for this show mm. watching this. Wow. It, which is sort of a no notes sign, right? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and also, it was so short, probably too. 
But one of the first things I wrote down was in that first 20 minutes, I was like, this is fucking bold. Because like, <laughs> it just drops you in to this yeah. place with no explanation, no exposition, mm-hmm. no really indication of who our characters are. If you've seen the movie poster, you know more about the movie than than going in blind than going it, in yes. blind and i, I mean yeah. i'd seen the poster but still like i didn't know that much about it yeah. and at first i was like wow like did i miss something <laughs> you know because <laughs> marvel movies and other sort of blockbuster movies tend to just baby feed us you know yeah like like our there's more signposting yeah. Sign yeah. and this is just like you are here and you are in mm-hmm. this place with these characters that talk this way and so when i read that he loved Richard Linkletter, I was like, yes. That is I, what this movie reminded me of. I couldn't put my finger on it until after I read that. But the first 20 minutes of this movie are like the first 20 minutes of Slacker. Speaking of the first 20 minutes, should we, uh, uh, yeah, should we get to the plot? Yeah, you know what? We yes. should. Okay, fine. <laughs> I want to talk about how great the movie was made, but if we want to talk about the plot, I guess. <laughs> but we could, while talking about the plot, we could absolutely All talk right. about how well the movie yeah. was made. So let's get to Act One. Welcome to a special episode of Paradox Theater. So the movie is, in fact, framed as an episode of Paradox Theater, a Rod Serling-like mystery show on television. And our story takes place in the 1950s small town of Cayuga, New Mexico, the night of the big basketball game. Our protagonists are Everett and Faye. Everett is a local radio DJ who thinks he is cooler than he actually is. No, he's pretty cool. Okay. (laughs) Faye is a high school science nerd who works as a switchboard operator at night. Faye just bought a new tape recorder, and Everett shows her how to use it, a.k.a. bacon biscuits. Faye also tells Everett about some technological predictions about the future that she read, including a smartphone. Everett confidently predicts the wrong things will come true. As the game gets underway, Everett starts his broadcast at WOTW, and Faye starts her shift at the switchboard. She listens to Everett's show on the radio and hears a weird signal that interrupts it. She also fields calls about a strange phenomenon emerging from the sky. Then she hears the same signal over a phone line. When she asks her fellow operators about the signal, her connection to them drops. Faye calls Everett, and he's never heard it before either, and so he decides to broadcast the audio and asks his listeners to call in to provide information about the signal. On it, There are two shots that are early in Here this. Here we go. Yeah, let's talk about that. Now, let, I was going to say, we're going to talk about how well this is made on it. There are two shots that are early in this film that could not be more different, and yet both are legit extraordinary. One is just a single shot on Faye at the switchboard, a shot that I believe lasts more than 10% of the film's running time. I checked. I think it's more than nine minutes of film. Mm -hmm. The other is a shot that takes us from the switchboard to the game, which is several blocks away, and then to Everett's radio station, which is several blocks away from that, and nicely lays out the town's geography. The first one is not very showy. The second one is very showy, but, like, it's still pretty goddamn amazing. Which shot did you like the best? Believe it or not, I like the static one. I did, too. Yes. It's ballsy. Like, yeah. it's just it's just such a bold choice to do yeah. that. And mm-hmm. reading interviews with Patterson later, I mean, it was very intentional on his part. Like, he was almost like this whole movie almost feels like he made a dare on himself. <laughs> You know, like he yeah. imposed all these restrictions like it's a dogma movie or something. Well, uh, I, I, I mean, this is like... Because um, he went it, in it, not wanting to do much editing. That's what I found really interesting. Ah, he gave an interview okay. where he said, I believe I was obsessed with the idea that if you do your job right as a writer, you don't have to cut very much. If you're telling hmm. stories that are fascinating, you don't need the assistance of editing, 
which hmm. I don't know if I truly believe that, but it's an interesting conceit, and he does right. pull it off. I mean, again, to to borrow, I don't. He's probably never said this, but it reminds me in that sense of Hitchcock's Rope, which is a movie in which Hitchcock dared himself to shoot ten minute segments. He shot as long as the, there was film in the camera, and then like just made these these edits. So in, in that sense, it is similar. There's a lot of long shots in this film. There are seven hundred shots in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, some as long as ten minutes. In the normal movie, in an average movie, there are about a thousand or almost two thousand shots. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So he really, really restricted himself, and again, it works, and it's just so bold, and it it, it mm-hmm. does put a lot of weight on the script and a lot of weight on the actors. Mm-hmm. I also want to say to get to my little hobby horse about people typing. Yes. <laughs> switches on a keyboard aren't typing. No. <laughs> and somehow inherently more interesting. <laughs> I was just thinking about but how much tension he rings out of. Faye, mm-hmm. like moving around these, you know, plugs on a switchboard, right? Like, the, there's a physicality to it that is different yeah. from typing. Yeah, I mean, like it, that's part of it, which is, is that she, you know, it's there. There's effort that's required to do this, but also, like, I think there's also that little thrill of who are they connecting to? Like, you're not entirely sure until you find out. And I guess there's sort of this some feeling of like something could go wrong. It's not yeah. like it's danger, but more like. Mm-hmm. There's a skill here that she's mm-hmm. she's using, um, so there's a lot of tension in that shot. Um, yeah. The tracking shot, I found out, it's actually four shots because you can oh, use okay. digital magic these days. Yeah, the camera was mounted on a go kart. Oh, and, I and driven by the resident of Whitney, Texas. Wow, I assumed it was a drone, so that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> maybe enough. maybe for seven hundred thousand dollars you don't get a drone. <laughs> that's fair. Yes, yes. You get a um, go kart. You get a go kart and a local. Right, and I want to be clear. By the way, I liked both shots. It's not that like yeah, I I, I thought that one tracking shot was amazing because it's yeah, it's it gives great. you a sense of the town. It's great, and it it's it's showy, but it's not yeah. as bold. Like the thing right. that I like about the shot of Faye is just like you are just putting a lot on on black or whatever it is the right gambling metaphor is. Like you're just right. And the other thing is, is that, I mean, I agree with you. One of the reasons that shot works is that one of the things, this this film has a lot of, like, hidden menace in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there it, this is a horror movie in some ways. It's not a jump scare horror movie, but there is a sense of dread that builds throughout this film. And that shot is the first time you feel that dread, I think would be the way to put it. I want to add another one of the influences that yeah. Patterson mentioned, which is All the President's Men. Mm-hmm. Which, again, once he mentioned it, I was like, yeah, I see it. No. I see it. And it's that sense of dread. Like, yeah. you know, All Presence Men, to, to, in some degree, is also a horror movie. That's <laughs> true. Yes. That's good point. Yes. And, and, but it has that same, one of the reasons why that movie works is because you have this sense of, like, something's happening, something's happening, something's happening. Um, yeah. And I, I just feel some of the ways the shots are blocked and stuff. I know it seems strange to compare those two movies, but I think it maybe has something to do with the two people in static frame trying to figure something out. Yeah, well, I mean, the other thing is All the President's Men, they are very similar. All the President's Men does not have a lot of showy editing. There's a lot of just static shots of either Redford or Hoffman on the phone. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, the the, the acting does a lot of work because they're reacting to what they're hearing. And again, much like this, it's the drip, drip, drip of like, wait, what? Oh, my God. What? What? And so, yeah. And I'm remembering what he said exactly about all the president's men being influential Mm -hmm. for him, which is this idea of having only showing one side of a phone conversation. Right. And having exactly. all the power of it come from the one side. Yeah. yeah, Totally works. Billy is their deep throat. All right. Speaking of which, let's move to act two, Billy's story. 
So, a man named Billy calls the radio station and tells Everett that he's heard that sound before. Billy served in the military and was ordered to a secret location in the desert. He and other personnel dug a large underground bunker to house an enormous unknown object. As he and other crew members were flying away from the facility, he heard the exact same signal come over the plane's radio. Uh, Billy had heard of other instances of the military burying similar cargo in secret locations in which the same signal was heard. He thinks it's a communication signal from whatever was buried to something out there. Billy also reveals that he is dying from lung cancer, believing that it was caused, in fact, by his time in the desert. He also thinks he was chosen for his duty because he was black. Indeed, his entire detail was either uh, black or Mexican, to ensure that they were less likely to be believed by the public. He has kept in touch with others on this detail, however, including a former Air Force member who lives in Cayuga and recorded this sound again. Faye realizes that this gentleman is now deceased, but that he gave his tapes to the local library, and Faye has a key because, damn, she is an awesome nerd. So... Faye and Everett steal the tapes from the library, with Everett convinced that whatever is happening is Soviet in origin. Anna, the one thing that jarred me out of the film watching this a second time around, and this might be because I watched it the this, this second time, was that I couldn't quite buy Faye completely abandoning her switchboard post. She's too conscientious for that. Right, but there's a basketball game happening. <laughs> And also, so, oh, so there's no calls. That's fair. Yeah, okay, that's fair. Yeah. That's and also, fair. I think yes. she, okay. she really believes in the mission here. And yes, Dan, she does. I would like to take this moment to talk about the Everett Sloan School of Broadcast Journalism. <laughs> Please do. Please do. Uh, he gives some really good journalism advice uh, okay. when he's when he's teaching Faye how to work her recorder. Yeah. And telling her just go up and start 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 talking to people. We mm-hmm. have discussed how hard that is to do. It is. I'm not as good <laughs> at it as you are, for example. So well, yes. The way that actually it's funny, like if you want to compare me to Faye, like the way that I'm able to do it, and I think mm-hmm. I've said this on the podcast before, is I, I have to make up a, I have to kind of make it a game for myself. Mm-hmm. Like it's my job. This is a thing. I have a thing to find out. I'm not just yeah. doing this to like for giggles. I'm right. I have a thing I need to do. You and, do this for giggles, Anna. Right. That's true. <laughs> and I feel like Everett's kind of like shows her that like you're here to do this thing you're not just like walking around talking in your microphone like you have a job to do here right Mm -hmm. um and then interview wise at one point they're talking about the chipmunk or the raccoon or whatever it is that oh yeah the thing eating the the wire in the the game yeah and uh this woman says i heard it was a chipmunk and he says ask her how she feels about chipmunks and (laughs) (laughs) i was like that is such a good interview tip like yeah when stuck in an interview, asking someone how they feel about something mm-hmm. is like a great thing to do. Hmm. I'm obviously, therapists know this, but it kind of gets people off of like the track. Road answers. Yeah, get, road answers. Get, yeah. yeah, like yeah. You, they have to, especially if it's something kind of weird, like how do you feel about chipmunks? Like people are like, wait, yeah. what? How do, I, how, do, how do I feel about chipmunks? <laughs> how do I feel about chipmunks? Mm-hmm. And then also the great tip he gives her about talking to uh, the man he refers to as a tombstone, uh, someone who's not very interesting. Ah, yes. He says, you know, tell them the tape machine's broken and you'll have to reschedule, and then you never reschedule. (laughs) Very good interviewing tip as well. Good to know. Good for getting in, good for getting out. I will say, I've been working in podcasts and radio for a long time, and I've never heard the term baking biscuits, but I am happy to keep using it from now on. (laughs) <laughs> so 
those are my thoughts on the Everett Sloan School of Art History Journalism. I have to say, one of the things I I, I liked baking biscuits, but I think I like just as much how excited Faye was by the term baking yes. biscuits. Yes. Faye, you know, it has, it has an enthusiasm to the, the character and it's extremely well done. Yeah. All right, let's move on to act three, creepy caller. So Everett and Faye broadcast the recording of the signal and then the radio station's power and only the radio station's power is knocked out. Coincidence? They head to the switchboard office where Faye handles numerous calls about something in the sky. A couple named Gerald and Bertsy drive up and say that they've been pursuing that same unidentified flying object, yeah, I said it, in the sky. An elderly woman named Mabel Blanche calls the switchboard for Everett. She says she can explain the signal if he comes to her house because she's infirmed and can't really go anywhere. Faye abandons the switchboard again, and she and Everett... Yeah, see, that's ha- a little more like, I mean... Yeah, you understand, because, like, this, like, she gets back to the switchboard, there are calls waiting now for her. Now there are so, calls. Like, the first yeah. time, there's a basketball game, this is important. That's fine, yeah. Now... But, like, did she really have to go with Everett for, to, to Mabel's house? I don't think so. So that, that that's all I'm saying. It's a minor critique. I still love this film. Just pointing that out. Yes. Anyway, she and Everett head to Mabel's. As they enter the house, they hear her reciting words in an unknown language. Mabel claims that these phenomena that they are experiencing are spaceships, and the aliens use the words she has uttered to hypnotize and abduct humans, including her son when he was nine years old. She believes the aliens will target isolated people while most of the town is doing something else, a.k.a. going to a basketball game, and suspects the aliens are responsible for sowing lots of human conflict. Mabel then asks Everett to take her to the alien ship to reunite with her son. Uh, Everett ain't doing that, and so leaves with Faye very quickly. Anna, I have there's there's a lot that is I think creepy about this film, or or like has tension about this film. I'm not gonna lie, Mabel scared the living fuck out of me, and more than anything else in this film, and I don't know why. And so I'm gonna ask you as the journalist slash familiar with therapists to explain this to me right um i would also i would say film enthusiast is another yes. reason why i think film i can help yeah. explain this because it's the yes. way she's shot i think yeah there's the so first say of all, more about that there's the way we come upon her which is her muttering in this mm-hmm. language which is inherently creepy yeah that's fair right yes mm-hmm. and then i don't know if you, well, the, you i'm sure you notice but if you think about it the way she's shot is she's almost like in a spotlight with darkness behind her right yes and it makes her look like she's hiding something yeah and she is hiding something like I, I believe like i we don't know what exactly but like the story she tells is a very strange story yes right i mean that in and of itself is part of what's going on here yes <laughs> and it's a strange it's it's strange on, i mean i i don't know if we're supposed to believe and trust her hmm. to be honest like there's something about her that i think is that is that communicates distrust maybe it's just that she's had the, it's the way she's shot I think it's she's, the way she she's shot the one she does the exp- she does the most exposition of anyone in the movie. Right. And I love good exposition as we have mm-hmm. established. Yeah. But I just don't like it's she's she's come up with all this herself, right? Like she Well, it's her really... hypo- it is her like the hype they put it this way. There is hypotheses that she comes up with all by herself that as we'll get to I'm not entirely convinced by. But yeah. this might be where I'm I think I disagree with you a slightly and and for two reasons. The first is, is that when we're first introduced to this character, it's on the phone. And she right. sounds perfectly agreeable on the phone. Yes. On the phone, she sounds pleasant. She sounds cooperative. She know, you know, she, she tells him how to, to get into the house. It's entirely 
she doesn't sound scary is the way I would put it. Right, right. And then we'll talk a little bit later because some of the things she says do turn out to be true. And so that's also something. Yeah, I, yeah I, that's, I, true. So, that's true. That's yeah. true. But I, I, she's shot in that weird way. Yeah. Also, it is strange to me. I, this is another thing that might be just like a fault of like quick movie making or something. But like mm-hmm. she does ask to go with them. And then that's kind yeah. of it. Like he doesn't even it's just she doesn't make a fuss about not going. Right. She doesn't like, protest. Yeah. No, that's she's just true. like, oh, OK. <laughs> like I, I just want to be reunited with my son. Oh, never mind. You know, that's, like to me. <laughs> yeah, that's no. It, I was a little. You, that's a fair point. Although, also, I mean, we do know she. It's not like she could jump up and like, you yeah, know. Yeah, that's another thing everything. too, yeah. right? Is like she, yeah. she, she won't even go meet them at the door. She's supposedly right. such an invalid, but then yeah. she's like, "Take me with you to the forest to see right. the." That part, yes. Okay, so I, I think it's the specific request that creeped me out. In yeah, oh, sure. Yeah, that's part of it. Yes. Um, and, but I mean, also, it, and again, this might be just like I'm, I'm finding some faults in the a little bit of the screenwriting here. Like right. there's just not. But I do think we're not supposed to know what to do with all her information. Right. And I would say the acting is extraordinary. She yes. gives a great. She's only in for for what must be I think ten minutes. But it's a. It. I cannot stop looking at her. I mean, I'm creeped out. But it's a good performance. Agree. Totally yeah. agree. I will say that when she was saying that language, I had mm-hmm. a thought that we might be getting to Navajo code talking like oh stuff. I see I guess actually it, we were talking before about Chekhov's what's it the language yeah. is probably Chekhov's what's it yeah. in that sense yeah, yeah Chekhov's fake language Chekhov's fake language all right. all right let's close with act four aliens why does it always have to be aliens after they leave Mabel Faye collects her baby sister Maddie from the sitter they reconnect with Gerald and Bertsy and excitedly head to where the ships are spotted Everett decides to play the recording of Mabel speaking in the weird language, and in the front seats, Gerald and Bertsy enter into a trance and look up. Gerald nearly drives off the road. Faye grabs Maddie and runs out of the car into a forest, and I can't say as I blame her, given that they just nearly died. Everett follows. They realize that the trees and ground where they are have been burned. They arrive at a clearing and see a large alien ship, and watch in awe as that ship rejoins an even more massive mothership in the sky. And then, hey, the basketball game ends. We see the crowd <laughs> leaving the gym, and we don't see Everett, Faye, or Maddie anymore. Only their footprints and a charred tape recorder remains. And thank you for watching Paradox Theater. Anna, I think now might be a good time to talk about the race, gender, and class stuff going on in this film, because I kind of noticed it, which makes me suspect that you noticed even more of it. <laughs> I don't know if I noticed even more of it. I think that one of the ways that this movie is economical is in that it really, I mean, authorial intent doesn't matter and, so, and a story is never just a story. And yet, sometimes it, that's true. I think it's, it's it's a very, this story is is what you make of it, right? Yeah. Like there's mm-hmm. not, that's it's so streamlined. Like I don't, yeah. I'm wary of reading too much into it. Oh, I didn't want to say. I'm not usually, yeah. I'm not usually wary of reading too much into things. I usually right. go ahead and dive right in. Um, but there is some, so what it does say, I think it's saying very clearly. Mm-hmm. Which is? Which is the government is happy to benefit from racism. Yeah, right? pretty much. That's pretty clear. Yes. Society doesn't believe women either. Hmm. Yes. Um, that's, okay. that's one of the things in Mabel's story. Maybe I'm even showing some, some of the ways that patriarchy affected my thinking when I say I don't believe Mabel, but. There we go. Uh, and there's that bit about how the girl that ran away is called a witch too. Oh, like right. Yes. Yes. Not mm-hmm. great. Class is an interesting point. This I was, was the, thinking about rural versus urban, not really class. 
so the reason I brought up class is, I mean, and again, by the way, I want to agree with you on one point, which is I, nothing in this movie is wasted. And one of the things right. I liked is the degree to which you learn about the Everett and Faye's dynamic is just enough, but not too much. There is no tragic backstory attached to Faye. Was, as often happens to a female protagonist in a yes, sci-fi movie. like Contact. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> we, but, don't, we don't learn that Faye is running the switchboard because she misses her dead mom. Right, yeah. exactly. But what we do learn <laughs> is that Faye is the daughter of a single mother and that Faye cannot conceive of a life in terms of going to college or what have yeah. you. And that she's sort of economically constrained. And one of the things that I did think was interesting was the contrast between what I would say is Everett's confidence and Faye's uncertainty. And it, it's just a little dynamic between the two of them. But, like, Everett clearly thinks he's getting out, you know, and I know, Faye yes. doesn't. Yes, that's, I know that's that my too. Point. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting also, Everett seems surprised that Faye isn't able to imagine this right exactly herself. yes because he's like no you can totally do this can't right. you see that you can do this yeah um and some of that is just like yeah men think that they can do stuff and women think they can't right you know like <laughs> i owe to have the confidence of an average white guy right, right. Yeah. and everett, everett has that and more <laughs> yes that's and that that was the thing that struck me but that said it is i mean everett clearly thinks that faye can get out as well which is an yeah. important you know there's an interesting mentoring relationship, I guess, would be the way to put it. And But I do think the rural-urban thing okay. is interesting here. Go on. Um, the context of this film is you know, Cold War 1950s, mm-hmm. right? And this is a period in American history when the suburbs are just starting to take off, right. literally. You know, mm-hmm. And America is starting to re-identify itself yeah. away from rural parts of the country. And more mm-hmm. suburban, not necessarily urban, mm-hmm. right? And so the thing that I thought about was it's not just, you know, women and people of color that the media and society at large doesn't believe. It's mm-hmm. rural people. Yes, that's a fair point. That's interesting. Okay. And and now it's, you mentioned about getting away. <laughs> <laughs> you were surprised I told, when I texted you. I don't think this movie necessarily has an unhappy ending. Yeah, so, okay, so... A few things about this. First of all, so go ahead. You explain why you don't well, think it's an Well, I mean, ending. it's just they both wanted to leave town. And, no, and I'm not <laughs> I'm not just trying to be funny. Like, we don't That's know true. a lot about the aliens. We don't. That's true. Yeah. Like, we don't know if they have nefarious plans for us or not. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, they may have, have stolen people away. You know who also stole a bunch of people away? Every colonizer ever. <laughs> but we don't even know if they're colonizing. And also, we don't know what they're doing to, with, with the people that they've taken away. We don't know if they understand that that's a bad thing to do. We have very little knowledge. And that's part true. of me is yeah. like, if I'm a reporter uh-huh. and an alien comes to me and says, want to take a ride, that's good radio. <laughs> That's so, radio. I'm surprised to, he didn't bring his recorder. That to, is the only thing that I would say is evidence that there might be something. Right. So a, a few things here. First of all, it's not clear they chose to go so much right, as they went. Right, so that, right. that's one thing. That's thing but one. But we don't know either way. Don't know that's either true. way. That's true. Thing two is that I, I have to admit, the, to the extent that there is authorial intent, that last shot of a charred tape recorder is not encouraging. But, but you might be right. But the third thing, and this is the one thing that I can't quite figure out. What why this happens is why do you introduce Maddie in the last fifteen minutes of the film? Yeah, that when we talk about the movie economical, I, that's yeah. the, that is a part that I was like, and even to the point where I was kind of like, why is she carrying a baby around? Like, right, because it, like, literally, just, I, you see, she a just new- carries the baby around for like the last ten minutes of the movie. 
Yeah, and, it, and, it. and also, like, there's that last shot of the three of them before you don't see them again, where it's clear they're supposed to look like a nuclear family. Yeah. And so I, I just wasn't sure what the purpose was of that, actually. And so it was interesting to me. That was, like, it was... Faye is an interesting character, and to have the last, in the last ten minutes, her basically act like a mother was interesting to me. And I don't know why that choice was made. Yeah, it doesn't feel... I mean, this is one of the reasons why this is not as great a movie as Alien. There. <laughs> like, okay. Because I feel like when we talk about Alien, like, it, it's just, I mean, he had, they had the budget and the yeah. latitude to, to think through all of this. And right. so I'm very excited about whatever next movie this guy makes, yeah. which is, I believe I texted you, a revenge thriller involving beekeepers. I mean, hells yeah, I'm, I'm here for that. I'm there. Yes. I'm yeah. totally there. Yeah. But given I, a huge budget and lots yeah. of time, like, maybe right. we'll see how everything is intended to turn out. Mm-hmm. We have now mentioned like there's three or four like big places where it's like, huh? You know, mm-hmm. like, mm. and I think one of them is Maddie. Yeah. yeah. But again, I, I want to cl- stress, these are minor criticisms. Like the yes. film as a whole really works. And I think I liked it as much as you did. It's just, I think this was the second viewing effect for me, which is I knew what was going to happen. And I was sort of noticing some other things this time around. It's funny, though. There's just not much of a movie to be critical of. I mean, yeah. <laughs> when you make a movie that's 90 minutes long, like, how many criticisms can you have? No, that's true. That's, not, yeah. that's, that's a joke because I believe that the Adam Project is also very short. But <laughs> <laughs> We might do that later, listeners. And, and yeah. oh, boy, we'll have some stuff to say about that. You know, speaking of stuff to say, Dan. Yeah. Yes, Anna. Is there IR in this movie? I will tell you what is happening, Anna. But I will have one request for you when I have finished. <laughs> so, is there IR? Yes, although I am not entirely sure how accurate it is. So, basically, this movie is obviously sort of delving into the link between the surge of UFO sightings that really begin in the late 40s and peak in about the early 60s and the Cold War. And it's not a coincidence. Both the US and USSR worried that the other country was actually making contact with aliens, which would somehow give them a technological advantage. And this is one thing that was revealed, apparently, when the Soviet archives were declassified. So it does not surprising that they're both concerned about this. And this film is set at the peak of Cold War UFO sightings. Apparently, the Air Force was inundated with them in the 50s. And so in 1953, the CIA actually commissioned Howard Robertson, who was a Caltech mathematician, to form an advisory group about what to do with all of these things. What the hell do you do with all these UFO sightings or with UFO reports? So the Robertson panel decided that the problem was not the possibility of UFOs, but rather the excessive number of UFO reports, that the surfeit of those reports was a problem because they could drown out actual reports of Soviet incursions into American Just to be clear, it's not the fires that were the problem, it's the fire alarms. Or, you know, it's not COVID, it's the testing. Yes. (laughs) The testing is the problem. Okay. So the panel actually recommended eliminating any sort of, you know, uh, respectable aura surrounding UFO reports. And that, as it turned out, worked out great for about 40 years. Okay. (laughs) Good thing no one has any conspiracy theories. No one's like using that as evidence that the government is up to nefarious things like... But yeah. I will point out in some ways... Covering it wa- shit up really worked out well. I, you know what? I'm going to say that it actually did work. It didn't work in the long, long term. Fair <laughs> enough. But like, truly, for 40 years, if you were someone who claimed that UFOs existed, it was pretty easy to marginalize you. And I think that was what they were trying to, to do. And so in that sense, it was mission accomplished. But yes, much like other mission accomplished, 
Um, it didn't quite necessarily last as long as was intended. Now, the other bit of IR is is Mabel's theory that aliens foment, you know, hostility within humans to essentially, you know, it's a divide and conquer strategy. That is, you, you foment conflict and that allows you to do whatever you want. This would certainly be consistent with older human efforts at imperialism. God knows if there's anything that imperialists are really, really good at, it is trying to sow divisions into the places that you are trying to conquer. That said, why aliens would do this, but then not like actually make their presence felt is a little bit of a mystery. I mean, I, I understand this if you're trying to conquer. I'm not sure what the division for the sake of division is for, I guess. Yeah. Now is a good time for me to tell listeners what the Fermi paradox is, if they didn't already know. Yes, please do. Anna. Do you know, know what, what the Fermi Fer- paradox is? I do know what the Fermi paradox is. It's do you want me to say it? it? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. I, it, the Fermi paradox <laughs> is essentially, I believe it was Enrico Fermi who said this. It was at some conference. Basically, where are the damn aliens? Yeah. Like, if, if there's so many, you know, possible planets that could house alien life, why haven't we run into them yet? Which is a very simple question. And the answer isn't that there aren't any. I mean, there are Mm -hmm. various sort of answers to that. But yes, essentially, why haven't we heard from them? The answer actually is, do you know what the Drake equation is? It has to do with like how the speed of light and how many inhabitable planets there are? No? Sort of. what I was reading. The Drake equation is essentially an equation that tries to calculate the probability of contact by alien civilizations. Which So what you have to do is figure out, well, how many possible planets are there that could sustain life? And then, you know, how many of those could have an advanced technological civilization that would then be potentially able to contact us? And one of the more interesting slash depressing things that many people who have talked about the Drake equation uh, postulate is that essentially any civilization that would acquire the technological sophistication to potentially contact us would also probably implode. Yes. That is, they would have the capacity to destroy themselves and might do so. And I don't know what they're talking about. I mean, it's not like no, humans the are variations, on the variations. So I've read a couple other variations yeah, on this. Yeah. One of them is any civilization that had the had the capability to contact us would probably colonize us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> already de facto more technologically advanced. And then the yeah. other thing was more like this idea that if you once you plot out the possibilities, then how long would it take? Like, mm-hmm. of... It uses some kind of like the like sort of ripple effect of like, well, how far away would these planets be? What what speed would you have to travel at? Right. And the answer is they would be pretty far. Yes. Yes. Right. So they'd have to travel whatever. Like even if you're traveling at X speed of light, Mm -hmm. you know, or sorry, to say point X, I guess, speed of light. It's not speed of light. Anyway, lots of people who spend a lot of time thinking about this. Yes. (laughs) And recent UFO reports have only just like driven that even further. Um, right. But now, Anna, it is time for my request. Yes, Dan? Is there a critique of capitalism in this film? Dan, don't razz my berries. <laughs> and there's not much of a critique of capitalism in this movie. As I said, I took the fewest notes I've ever taken. I cannot stress <laughs> how weird this is, but like, <laughs> like I just like have three different notes. One of them, however, is... When Mabel is giving her monologue and she says, we're always, what the aliens are doing is, uh, you're putting us in conflict. We're always cleaning house or losing weight or dressing up for other people. <laughs> Dan, aliens are capitalism. There we go. I did like how, how she went from, we're always like losing weight to, 
we're the aliens are showing conflict on each other yes yeah yeah. yeah, i know i liked that too we're cleaning house losing weight dressing up for other people going to war i was like boy that escalated (laughs) quickly capitalism causes all those things well okay i do think there's a couple other things that just came to me one is uh, something about sort of the commercialism and consumerism of this period and and Mm -hmm. how it ties into paranoia like buying things makes us feel safe Right. And happy. Faye bought and happy. the Faye bought Faye was clearly happy with that tape recorder. Yes. Right. And it, it was struck by the fact that all of the inventions that Faye talks about are consumer items. They're all things that individual mm-hmm. people would buy and use. And that may or may not be a conscious choice on the part of the author. But the Cold War was this engine that that fueled consumerism in a lot of ways. Like literally, right? Like all this mm-hmm. money being spent, all these suburbs being built, all mm-hmm. these government policies helping white people stay on top of things. Mm-hmm. So there's something there. And I also wanted to say, as much as I love Everett <laughs> and his on-the-fly journalism school, there is something not great about doing things because they make, quote-unquote, good radio. Yeah, that can't be the only reason you do something, I think. Yes, that would be. Yeah. Yeah. I will give Everett credit because he does at least try to talk to Billy beforehand and saying, look... Yes, you know. he brings up his, he brings up journalism ethics with Billy. Yes. I did like that too. Yes, this is about <laughs> ethics and UFO journalism, after all. Anna. I mean, this is oh, fundamentally man. a movie about be, that. Be still, my heart. It's time for a it's time for a panel on UFO ethics. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're old. Uh, we're very, very old. <laughs> Those are inside jokes for people over the age of 45. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. Oh, wait. Oh, Dan, What's that? Wait. It's burned debris. Oh, debris. no, charred debris. debris. Field. Yes. Dan, this is where we talk about the stuff we haven't already got a chance to talk about. We've already talked about a lot. Yes. But what do you got? A few things. First of all, we learn, among other things, that Everett's full name is Everett the Maverick Sloan. And I guarantee you, no one has ever called him the Maverick. You know, again, I think I think you like ever a little more than I did, but I was like, no way is anyone no, ever called I, him the man. I appreciated the. We haven't talked a ton about the acting, I guess. Yeah, that's um, true. What I appreciated about the Everett character was walking the line between just total nerd himself and right. someone who you might want to beat up mm-hmm. because they're being, you know fatuous yeah um and complete confidence it's a, it's a and he pulls it off like that's true no I, that i agree that's an excellent point it's a it's a good performance that is what yeah. i would a- agree with on you yes yeah. <laughs> this isn't a huge thing but during that huge tracking shot where they like go into the the stadium with the <laughs> basketball game if, if you watch this film but i was a prime replay the actual part where they're doing the play-by-play it is the single worst play-by-play ever recorded i mean it is just bad uh, I can't know. remember what it is now, but I remember having that same thought. But it was like, like this player passes to another player. Yeah. It was, like, I just, it was <laughs> just really awful, and it was like that mm-hmm. had that was a choice. There is no way that was an accident. Yeah. Um, some of Everett's lines to Faye are just priceless. Uh, one was like, "I don't need your judgment right now," and the other one, which was unsurprising, that's was, my new that's my new sig file for my. <laughs> the other one is, I hurt girls' feelings a lot. It was like, "Yep, yeah, yeah, I'm not surprised, Everett." You know. Speaking of performances and costuming, uh, Sierra McCormick plays Faye, and it is amazing what a pair of glasses will do, because, you know, I, you watch her throughout most of the film, and then I remember checking IMDb afterwards. The actress looks nothing like the Faye we see in the film, and it's mostly because Faye is wearing these glasses that are just completely distracting. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then finally, again, the highest compliment I can pay this film is it does not feel like a movie made for less than a million dollars. While there are shots that are clearly economizing and all of that, the acting is top-notch. The set design is amazing, given what the, the, the limited budget they have. It was just, it's a pleasure to watch. What about you? One thing we come back to a lot on this show is talking about how the one of the things that distinguishes good movies from bad movies is the mm-hmm. amount of care that's put into them, the amount of yeah. attention to detail. And this movie is the, nothing if not attentive, mm-hmm. right? Yes. The interviews w- with Patterson, I, I highly recommend searching out some of them because he's an interesting guy. This He's 38 years old. This is his life's work so far. Wow. I love that he's 38. This is his first feature film. <laughs> uh, <laughs> one of the things he talks about in one of the interviews is wanting needing to i think they did it digitally to tint the street lights differently oh it's because street lights in the 1950s were used like you know different uh, gas than yeah. the street lights today they wouldn't have been halogen that's certainly true. right they yeah. would have been halogen yeah. that in and of itself like was like <laughs> somebody's thought about all of this right exactly all yeah. of it yeah and you really feel that and i think that's why it feels like not a seven hundred thousand dollar movie yeah I also will say, I meant to say this earlier, Patterson did not give himself a film credit. Wait, what? He, he's not listed as a directed, there's no directed by. There's no directed by? Oh my God. Is Are you, yeah. I thought, I would assume, I guess he's not DGA. I would assume like, if you're in the union, you have to give yourself he, a directed by. In the interview, like, well, Soderbergh pointed, in the interview, like, so I read there was like a three-way interview with him and Soderbergh yeah. and some other reporter. And Soderbergh's first question was, where's your credit? And mm-hmm. Patterson's like, Hardly even noticed that, but I was <laughs> typing up the credits myself, and it felt weird <laughs> to oh, put my name. <laughs> that makes me like him so much. Like, there's not a lot of self-effacing people like that in Hollywood. Um, yeah. So I hope he gets more opportunities to make more film, and I hope Hollywood doesn't corrupt him. Is all I'm saying. And this is something else you and I were talking about before, mm. which is I can't get the economy. I just. Everything is serves a purpose in this yeah. movie. Everything serves a purpose. And one of the things I said to you after I finished watching it was that it, it sets are economical. You know, it's number of mm-hmm. characters economical. And I could imagine it being a, a play, like a high school play. Yeah. Like it would be good too, right? Like mm-hmm. you could scale this in such a way that most of your big action takes place. Like you hear the sounds from the gym. You don't have right. to have a show a gym and stuff, right? Or you could you could also do this as a radio play. I would add, like right. that it was clearly. I mean, there, there are moments where where the 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 film literally goes to black, and all you're doing mm-hmm. is hearing the the call or what have you. So yeah, right. And that was all intentional. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Patterson, as in one of the interviews, said, "If I boil it down to one objective, we wanted to make something that could exist across multiple mediums. In 20 years, it would be cool to see this as a play. Hmm. We wanted to be able to do something that, in five years, could be turned into a graphic novel or a radio play. Oh so, no. He's just really thinking forward, and yeah, I'm excited for the beekeeping uh, yeah. revenge thriller. That I cannot wait. Although I, th- I th- seem to remember reading that he was doing something else also, but he was being kind of cagey about it. I'm sure like studios are just like falling over themselves to offer him. Shit. They should be. Again, this was, this is really, I mean, it's, it's interesting that we saw everything everywhere all at once and then this, because the- They're the opposite movies, really. They are, but the care given to them is oh. is identical. That's yeah. the thing that I was thinking about. Well, yeah. I was thinking they're opposite. Yes, I agree with the, the yeah. care, but like everything everywhere all at once is exuberant. 
right and, and messy overstuffed yes. Yes. and messy right and, and this is leaning trying lean. to do way too much yeah and this if anything doesn't do i mean i would say if anything right it's yeah it can be too spare right i think we agree it does play. enough but like it, it's just barely doing enough might be the way to put it yes. right exactly Fair which enough. cuts against it mostly for it but can cut against it in some yeah. ways <laughs> and the soderberg i i look forward to, to hearing more about their relationship if it does develop because uh, he did say that one of the reasons he reached out to Patterson was that when uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape became big in the film circuit, he remembers being overwhelmed and mm-hmm. not knowing exactly how to handle it and talked about how he moved back to, I think, Tennessee. No, I think it was it was Charlottesville. I think it Charlottesville, was Charlottesville. Charlottesville. Yeah, yeah, moved back yeah. to Charlottesville, got married, and like settled down for a little yeah. bit. And he, that was his advice to Patterson, which Patterson's apparently taken. He still lives in Oklahoma. So. Good for him. Grounded. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll find out where he lives. <laughs> in the normal course of things. Yes. Don't stop um, <laughs> Great movie. I'm so glad we talked about it. Yes. Next week, The City We Became. Then Rogue One. Then Rogue One. And then, then The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. And then Gattaca. Gattaca. Yes, which I don't know how we haven't already done it. That's a that seems like right in our wheelhouse. It, yes. L- well, politics if not IR. I guess yeah. some IR too. Not a lot of IR, but mostly politics. It, it'll be interesting in that sense. Yeah. All right. Well, if you've made it this far, you probably already know that we'd love for you to become a patron. You become a patron by going to Patreon.com/slash/SpaceTheNation. We also have a newsletter where mm-hmm. I get to put all the information about the story behind the story that I I don't say. Which, believe it or not there's more there's often more <laughs> and you can subscribe to the newsletter at tinyletter.com slash space the nation i am at Henri cox he is at dan dresner and until next time keep this channel open for more <laughs>